0: Hello, and welcome to the Sola Gratia Sermons Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to drop in today. I pray that you enjoy this sermon and that God, through His Word, convicts you, encourages you, and edifies you. I also pray that this sermon increases your knowledge of God and grows your love for Him and His Scripture. God bless you and keep you. Soli Deo Gloria. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be resuming where we left off last time. And what we'll see in this text is the Bible's clear teaching regarding the relationship between obedience to God and knowing God. Obedience to God and knowing God. You can think, of course, of a dog that loves his owner, loves his family, and you can see that that dog loves his family and loves his owner by his obedience to his owner, right? That he loves to do these things. He'll do anything for his owner. He obeys, commands, he sits, he shakes, he lays down, right, etc., the well-trained dog doesn't love you only for food and water at least you hope he doesn't love you only for his food and water. but I believe he or she really loves his family and he shows that by lovingly obeying them and submitting to them. you know but cats are evil creatures <laughs> that, that <laughs> I got an amen back there. Evil creatures, they're only in the relationship for themselves. They do only show up when there's food in their bowl and water in their bowl. Our cat leaves for days at a time, days at a time, and then shows up and whines and yowls throughout the house because, oh no, her bowl is empty. Well, where have you been for days? She doesn't listen to a word I say. She doesn't care about me. She doesn't love me. Maybe she does, I don't know. It's a silly example, but I, I say all of that by way of introduction and example for this text. So we're continuing our ongoing study in 1 John. What we'll see here in this section of chapter 2 are three things that obedience proves salvation in God. Obedience proves, or you could say demonstrates, authentic, genuine salvation. And number two, we see that disobedience Proves estrangement from God. Disobedience shows estrangement. And we'll see that abiding obedience proves love for God. Love for God. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of the reading of the word. And we'll read this passage here together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. John says, and by this we know... This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is life to us. It is encouraging and convicting to us as well. Lord, I pray that you would be with your sheep this morning, that you would speak through me, speak through your word and use me, God, as an instrument. To preach and explain your word, Lord, I pray that your saints would be edified and encouraged this morning. And that your Holy Spirit would go out in convicting power, molding us more into the person of Christ. We thank you, Father, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as a reminder, overall, First John gives us two general, external, or you could say visible tests that prove or demonstrate genuine salvation. One test is a moral test, right? And another test is a doctrinal test. So we have doctrinal and moral. For a doctrinal test example, we saw in chapter one, that would be confessing a proper view of Christ and a proper view of sin. These are doctrinal tests. And then we have a moral test example. That would be obedience and love. Well, love for who? Brotherly and sisterly love. For those in the body, and of course, loving fellowship with God. So, doctrinal and moral, that's our two general tests that we see throughout this passage. And for context, immediately following the previous section that we went over, the fact that believers do still sin, we talked about that in Sunday school, they do, but even though we do sin, they have the assurance that we have an advocate. In Jesus Christ, he he who is the propitiation for our sin. And after covering that, John moves again into describing some of the fruits produced by true believers and false professors. Once again, back and forth, darkness, light. So he was speaking to earlier in this chapter two to children of God right to believers and he spoke to the benefits of being a child of God that we have an advocate we have propitiation these are benefits so now he tells us some things that objectively identify those children of God and differentiates them from those who do not know God so verse 3 here starts a, a transition into addressing this new issue this is a third test if you will, of proof of fellowship with God. The first two tests were in, were in chapter 1. And this third test is what? The connection between obedience and knowledge of God. So that's why I, I entitled this sermon, Obedience and Knowing God. So we will see that we cannot say that we know God and yet walk in perpetual, unrepentant rebellion and sin. Amen. That would be a contradiction. So number one, we see that obedience proves true salvation in God. Real, genuine salvation is proven by obedience. Verse three, he says, by this, we'll buy what? Well, what follows if we keep his commandments by this, we know that we have come to know him. John is now giving us this third test, like I mentioned, of genuine fellowship. Well, fellowship with whom? Well, with God, of course, and subsequently with believers, right? With his body. All of us gather here. This third test is obedience to God's commands. So as stated earlier, we have doctrinal and moral tests, right? This is a moral test, this obedience to God. In other words... If a person desires and practices obedience, this shows us good evidence, right? Good assurance that that person really knows God, that they're genuinely saved. First, uh, or sorry, John chapter 15 in John's gospel, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, this is Jesus speaking, you will abide in my love just as i have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love this is the the vine chapter i am the vine you are the branches john 15 so jesus shows us this john gill in his commentary says this is not to say of course that christ's love for the disciples or us is dependent upon our perfect keeping of his commandments that would be legalism right Christ loved us and died for us, after all, while we were his enemies. While we were still sinners, he died for us. But John Gill continues, But rather, the sense here is that by keeping the commandments of Christ, we and the disciples he was speaking to show that we love him and continue in our affection and commitment to him. That's what's demonstrated here. By our love for God and our obedience to him. Now, will we do this perfectly? You can answer. It's okay. Of course not. (laughs) You will not. You will fail. Was Peter perfect? Oh, poor Peter. (laughs) One moment. Peter, son Barjona. You have spoken truth. You are the Christ, son of the living God. And just a few verses later, he gets condemned for saying something stupid. <laughs> Was Paul perfect? Of course not. Romans 7. I do the things that I don't want to do. And the very thing I want to do, I don't do it. I struggle to do it. Wretched man that I am, he cries out. So thankful for that chapter in Romans. (laughs) Wretched man that I am. You will not do this perfectly. But what does keeping Christ's commandments look like? We have to ask that question, right? What are some examples? Well, John 15 that I just referred to provides a few examples. We see that believers, true believers abide in him. Abide in him, this means to obey, it means to keep to, or hold to, or to observe, or to follow, or to remain in, remain in me, abide in me as the vine, you are the branches, right, that's what this means, it speaks of a conforming of the Christian, growing in maturity, growing in holiness, right, so abiding in him, number two we see bearing much fruit, in John 15, we bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, John 15, 8. And thirdly, we see to love one another, love one another as he loved us, John 15, 12, just a few verses later. So we see these few examples of what it means to obey Christ's commandments, to follow him, to love him. And of course, Christ would have also been referring to. To the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, right? Of course. So overall, the biblical teaching we see is that one cannot say they know God, but live a life of perpetual unrepentant sin. We'll see that in the very next verse. Remember that John is addressing not only the tests that demonstrate one is a true believer but he's also addressing like we mentioned in chapter 1 the false Gnostic teachers of the day who denied their own sin who say I have no sin they claim to have special knowledge of who God is and how to get to God and all these things but they were wrong they demonstrate these false teachers that they do not know God by their acts by their disobedience to him and a false view of Christ. Again, the point, obedience proves or demonstrates that true salvation has actually happened. Amen? Still in verse 3, he says, we know that we have come to know him. If I remember correctly in my reading, John uses this word to know at least 40 times. In this small epistle. It's one of his favorite words it seems. And also abide. He uses that a lot. This Greek word again here for to know. Is one of my favorite words. If not my favorite. It is gnosko. Gnosko. And most of the time. Including here. This word speaks of an intimate. Relational knowledge. Of a person. Really knowing them. It's not speaking of. Just simply knowing about a person. Knowing some sparse details or anything like that. It's, not all, it's also not simply a knowledge of events. It is always personal. It refers to individuals. It is a deep knowledge. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word yada, which is used when we read, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived a son. We see the the intimate nature of this word. It speaks of a intimate relationship. It often speaks of a choosing to enter into relationship with someone as God chose to enter into relationship with us. Sinners who did not deserve him. Amen. I love this word to know. How is it demonstrated that we truly know someone after all? Right? How could we say that a man knows his wife, for instance? Does he simply know things about her? Does he know just what? The the color of her hair, her skin, her eyes, the fact that she is female? (laughs) You know, the kinds of clothes she wears, the sound of her voice? You know, well, of course not. That would not be really knowing her. These are things about her, these are things he could know about any person, after all. It's not knowing her. He knows her intimately. He's chosen to enter into a committed covenant relationship with her. Right? He knows what she loves, what she hates, her character, the way she thinks, her personality, her attributes, what makes her sad, what makes her happy, what things she enjoys, what things she detests. And her relationship with her children etcetera, etc. He knows her deeply and intimately. And hovering above all of that, the husband would what? Lay his life down for her. This is what this word means. We've come to know him. This is the kind of deep, intimate knowledge and deep relationship that God has with the believer. And likewise the believer ought to always seek To know God more, to know his attributes, uncovering layer after layer of who he is and his attributes and his majesty throughout his word. This is what we seek. And as we seek that, we become what? More conformed to the image of Christ. So we see in this verse three that a true relationship with God and true knowledge of him produces what? Obedience. Obedience. Not in order to be saved, right? But because we are saved. Number two, we see here that disobedience, disobedience proves estrangement from God, it proves that you don't know Him. Verse four. First, we saw the positive side, right, in verse 3. Now we see the negative side, the one who does not keep his commandments. In the husband and wife example, again, if the man were to simply start telling you general things about this woman, nothing about her character, nothing about who she is, revealing that he has no intimate knowledge of this woman, you would probably start to have some serious and awkward questions for him, wouldn't you? You don't know her at all. You're an imposter or an alien or something. You may feel like you're in a sci-fi film or something, like the husband's been replaced by a distant alien or something. You don't know her. You're an imposter. What have you done with her husband, you may say? He proves he doesn't know her. So likewise, we see here. The greater example, if a person says they know God, John says, and yet they live a pagan, rebellious life that is contrary to the way God says we ought to live, then we have reason to ask some very serious questions and to have some very serious concerns about that person. I love a Paul Washer's example of a teenager's mother who walked up to him one time and the mother explained, you know, this is a teenager who walked the aisle when he was a small child. He, he shook the preacher's hand after all, right? But now he's living like the devil, she says. Well, that child has perhaps demonstrated that his or her heart was never actually truly changed. He may be proving That he was never truly drawn to true faith and repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. They may have followed or expected the motions. They may have even repeated a prayer after the preacher. But they were never changed. Serious concerns we see here in verse 4. Continuing on. Remember, since... The beginning of this epistle, John has been making these back and forth contrasts that I've mentioned several times between the true believer and the false professor, one who is in the light and one who is in the darkness. And we see the same here. He's speaking of those who claim to know God. They claim to know him. Remember the Gnostics, again, who denied sin. They claimed that they had secret knowledge of the way to salvation. And commenting on this verse again, John Gill, on the words that say this person is a liar. John Gill says, meaning he contradicts, he being the liar, he contradicts what he says. For though in words he professes to know God, in his works he denies him and demonstrates his ignorance of God. And we see that all over, don't we? It's all around us. These are people who truly think they know God, though. They're so self-deceived and self-absorbed that they really believe that they're saved. They really believe that they, in their self-righteousness, are enough. I'm not that bad. I'm not Hitler. Why is that always the example we go to? (laughs) As if there's some... Golden standard of goodness. There is, and it's Christ. I'm not that bad. This is a perfect picture of what we saw with the Pharisees, whom Jesus rebuked many, many times. I'll read this passage here for you out of John chapter 8. Starting in verse 39, They, the Pharisees, answered him, Abraham is our father. Oh, so, so confident in their bloodline. Abraham is our father. And down in verse 40, Jesus replying, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God, the arrogance. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? I love these rhetorical questions of Jesus. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. They didn't like that. And your will, he says, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He says, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And listen to this. The reason why you do not hear me is that you are not of God. Did you hear what he just said? He roots their unbelief and why they are unable to hear his words in the fact that they are not of God. We saw the same in John chapter 10. Why do you not hear me? Why do you not follow me? Why can you not believe? Because you are not of my sheep. The Pharisees thought they knew God. They searched the scriptures. They did all the works. They claimed to follow the law outwardly. And yet Jesus says, you are a whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. You see the terrifying reality we have to understand From who John is talking about in 1 John 2 verse 4 here is that he is not talking about people who openly claim to be pagans. He's not talking about atheists like Dallas mentioned in Sunday school. He's not talking about those who practice outright sorcery or say that they hate God. Or anything like that. The terrifying reality is that John is speaking against those who are actually so self-deceived that they think they do know God. They think they know him. But on the inside, they've never truly had a changed heart. They do not seek after God. They are liars who have secret, unrepentant sin. They do not follow his commandments. They do not obey him. They don't even have a desire To obey him. And the truth is not in him in them. They have no fruit. They had what scripture calls a form of righteousness. But inside they were still dead. The question arises. Do you know someone like this? Of course we all do. An even more difficult question of self-examination is, do you yourself fit this description? I would hope that would be the, the minority, obviously, among us. But the preacher can never assume that every single person in the room is right with God. We must examine ourselves. Only the power of God, the Holy Spirit, can cause that truthful self examination. Amen? If we know people that are living in that false reality, claiming to know God, yet walking in darkness, it is our obligation, saints, our mandate, to reach out to them and tell them the truth. Not to win an argument but out of loving concern for them, compassion, like Jesus did. Number three, we see here that abiding obedience proves love for God. It proves love for God. Verse five, he says, but whoever, whoever keeps his word in him, Christ truly, the love of God is perfected. Is perfected. But whoever, well, who is this? Well, the whoever in verse 4 was referring to unbelievers, but here in verse 5, whoever is referring to believers. Here, once again, is the contrast. You see? This word keeps, whoever keeps my word, this is the Greek word tereo, which means to watch over, it means to guard, to keep and preserve. This word often refers literally to keeping guard over someone, watching over someone or something. In fact, it was the same word that was used of the guards who were keeping watch over or guarding Peter as he was in prison. They kept watch over him in Acts chapter 12. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. What does he mean here? Because this word does not imply sinless perfectionism, for that is impossible. Amen. This is actually describing something that has been accomplished. Many times when you see this word used, perfected, in the New Testament, that's what it's speaking of. It's speaking of bringing something to maturity. In a spiritual or an ethical sense, it describes a mature believer bringing something to fruition, accomplished. And that is to be our attitude towards the Word of God, His commandments. Those who truly love God, love His law, they love His righteousness, His truth. He says, In Him, the one who is keeping and guarding his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In the one that loves the word of God, the law of God. This is what David cried out in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. When was the last time we sang that in a song? How I love your word. We are to love his word, to keep it, to guard it, to watch over it. That's what this word means. Again, not that we are required to keep the law perfectly in order to merit or earn salvation, for that is impossible. Only Jesus accomplished that. And we hold on to his righteousness. But we are called to love God and those who truly love God, those who are truly in him, as this verse 5 says, they desire to keep his word. And this desire, this abiding obedience proves a real love for God. Abiding obedience. Matthew Henry, commenting on verse 5, said, We know that we belong to him. And that we are united to him by that Spirit which elevates and assists us to this obedience. Assists us. Are you so thankful that the Holy Spirit assists you and helps you to follow God, to keep his word, to love his word, to desire to keep his commandments? You don't do it alone. And he repeats himself, John does here. By this, we may know. I love the assurance that John gives us all the time. You may know the one who knows God, abides in him, conforms to him, and walks in the same way he walked. We'll see that in verse 6. They desire all those things and they practice those things. Amen? So the question has to naturally arise for us as believers. Guys, do you desire this? Do you desire to grow in him, to mature, to conform? Do those around you who claim to be Christians desire this? Because believe me, it's becoming less and less common, isn't it? much less common. It is astounding to me that anyone would still refer to America as a Christian nation. (laughs) Are we kidding ourselves? (laughs) We lead the world, lead it, in rebellion and perversion in everything from sex and gender and government and finances, the sanctity of life, the murder of the unborn, and name any other immorality we Lead it. Lead the charge. Yet in America, many people speak as if they think they are automatically Christians just because of where they live and what they do. This is exactly what John is speaking against here. They'll say, well, this is the Bible Belt. (laughs) We live. In the South, I'm conservative. We're not as bad as California, after all. I give to charity. I go to church semi-regularly. I read the Bible a few times a year. I don't do drugs, and I don't beat my wife. Therefore, I am a Christian. (laughs) No. It's exactly the kind of mentality that John is speaking against, isn't it? I do all these things. Yet you can ask that same person, what is the gospel? And they many times won't have an answer for you. If that is a person's view of Christianity, there is a high probability that he is not really a Christian. Where is the true love for God? Where is the fruit that comes forth? Of loving and keeping and guarding his word. Where is the abiding love for God leading to maturity? I'm not telling everyone here to be professional fruit inspectors. Okay. It's not what I'm saying. But the Christian should bring forth that wonderful light of maturity. And growing in love for God and holiness all throughout their life. Because he's changed them from the inside. These are the things that demonstrate an abiding love for God. Amen. I'll close out with this section here. In the last verse of this passage, verse 6. John helps give us some great application. Whoever says he abides in him. Ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What a great application. Thank you, John, for making it so easy. I know this section can feel like a heavy section, guys. I get it. This is the word of God. Many times the preacher has the job of saying the one thing that nobody wants to hear. And that's okay. We need to hear it. And don't misunderstand me. We don't need to hear these things so that we can feel bad about ourselves and beat ourselves up and walk in woeful. Whoa is me! That's not why we look at these things. Rather, we need to hear these things so that we are reminded of the character of a true believer, so that we examine ourselves, and so that we are able to spot and help those who are false professors around us at your workplace in your family, wherever it may be. Or we need to be honest with ourselves. Examine ourselves. We can pull out three quick applications from this verse six. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Three applications are one, that we can identify false professors, right? We've talked about that. And lovingly call them to repentance and faith In the God who is rich in mercy. Identify false professors. People say, but Jesus was just a friendly guy, wasn't he? He he dined with prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinners. Yes, he did. And he did not approve of their sin. And he called them lovingly to repentance. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You will not get to the Father except through me. Apart from me, you will die in your sins. Repent. Believe in me. So we can identify false professors. Two, the second application from this verse six is that we can draw encouragement to walk in holiness. Again, not beating ourselves up because we're failing. Of course, you'll fail. We all will fail. But we can draw encouragement. We can be encouraged because it is, after all, God himself through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that helps you to do these things. He helps you. Praise God for that. Amen. He doesn't leave you in the darkness. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. People will quote this often. Work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. But what does the next verse say? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God helps you to do this if you are in Christ. He helps you. And the third application is do not despair. Do not despair, fellow believer that you are not walking in perfect holiness or in the fact that you have fallen and that you're not able to perfectly keep his word and commandments, of course you're not. You will fail and you will fall. You won't keep these things perfectly, but Christ kept them all perfectly for you. We have an advocate who is made propitiation for your sins He guides you. Don't despair. He causes you to grow more and more. He matures you and he fosters that desire in you to follow him and to obey him. Don't despair. Trust in him. Alone and what he has accomplished. Take hold of Christ, believer. It's what the pastor has to proclaim over and over. Trust in him. I know that you'll struggle with these things or maybe you feel as though you've wandered from the flock. Whatever it may be, cry out to God. Cry out to him in repentance. Ask him to ignite that fire within you again and to convict you of sin. And to convict you to obey and love and abide in him and obey him. Ask him to do that. Ask him for his help. I believe that God will never turn away a contrite, humble heart of a believer who is crying out, asking for his help. Trust in him. And again, I can never assume if there are those here who may be in unbelief, perhaps who do not know God, are you living a double life? Are you the person in verse 4? Do you claim to know him, but you're living a lie? Then I call upon you this day to trust in Christ alone. You will not make it apart from him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Trust in him. Turn from sin and turn to Christ and live. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are so gracious in giving us your word in the fact that you don't leave your sheep in the dark to just figure this out on our own. You help us, Lord. You conform us. You'd lose not one of your sheep, Lord. You'll lose the ninety nine to go find the one that is lost. Lord, all of us were once that lost lamb. God, we're so thankful that you are rich in mercy that you've lavished your grace upon us. God, I pray that if there are any here who do not know you this day, that your Holy Spirit is going out in power right now and breaking and convicting hearts that are living a lie. And Lord, I thank you that your word is encouraging and uplifting to those who are believers, who trust in you, and it reminds us constantly of your love for us and it causes us to produce a fruit and abiding love and obedience for you out of thankfulness. God, I pray that would be true of us today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.